This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruneau. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Frederick Dickinson, professor of Japanese history and co-director of the Lauder Institute of Management and International Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Dickinson is the author most recently of World War I and the Triumph of a New Japan, 1919-1930, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Dr. Dickinson, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, Tristan. You've written widely about Japan's diplomatic history, looking especially at, say, World War One, and then the years after World War One, and and more recently looking also in this kind of global perspective and putting Japan into global developments. How is it that the Meiji Restoration impacts Japan's place in the world? Yeah, that's an interesting and legitimate question. I say, I guess, I would say. That is not the question I would start out with, or that is not necessarily the question I think that leads us to the most important significance of the Meiji years. Again, I'm, a, I'm an early 20th century scholar, but I am very interested, obviously, in Meiji for what it says about my era. More particularly, I'm interested in what it says in terms of the new project that I'm working on, which is a global history of modern Japan. And the more I think about a global history of modern Japan, the more I think that the interesting significance or the most profound significance of the 19th century years really has less to do with thinking about, say, Japan in the 19th century or Japan in the 20th century. The best and widest and most profound way of thinking about Meiji and its impact is to think about what does Meiji mean for the 19th century world? And that's essentially how I've taught Meiji, and that's how I'm trying to sort of cover Meiji in my global history of modern Japan. It is obviously related to, you know, very much with diplomatic uh, issues, which are my principal area of expertise, but it's not simply that. It's, it's political, it's diplomatic, it's cultural. Can you elaborate on what Meiji tells us about the 19th century world? So let's back up a little bit. I mean, again, I'm not a Meiji scholar, but I have been invited to several Meiji commemorations, a couple in Japan, a couple in, in the United States. And I'm, I've been sort of struck by the interesting contrast between, in general, what interests Japan scholars in, in Japan and what interests Japan scholars in the United States. My experience in Japan was very much you know, this notion that you know, what, what is important about Meiji, well, the importance about Meiji is to tell about this quite important and interesting phenomenon of the first Asian state, which became a modern industrial power and empire, essentially. So this topic continues to interest Japanese scholars, particularly the, the, the people who are my contacts in Japan, who basically do political and international history. For the American scholars, it's interesting that we've taken the discussion of Meiji as a discussion of well, a mixed bag of Meiji. In other words, there's a very interesting impulse and very strong one and, you know, legitimate one, I think, to not just talk about Meiji as accomplishment, but to, to talk about what is the dark side of that industrialization? What is the dark side of empire? And again, very legitimate. I would just simply say that on the Japan side, obviously, the danger is it just becomes an issue or a story about triumphant Japan. On the American side, if you don't be careful to put this in a comparative or global context, it can easily become 
a um, sort of orientalizing project where Japan is certainly becoming a state like everyone, certainly becoming a, an empire like many other powers. But you get the impression that the Japanese have a particular problem or particular sort of challenges in this enterprise for various reasons, maybe it's because they're a late developer or whatever. So I've seen those two sides of the Meiji commemoration. My interest, as I said, is to, okay, let's, let's take a look or try to th think about this in a more global context. And, and, and what does that involve? Again, there are many historians out there who do global history these days, and the number of definitions of what global history is, is equal to the number of people who actually imagine themselves as practitioners. But essentially, my take on global history is to do what I originally said to you, and that is, it's, it's a matter of asking a basic question of, okay, what, not what does Meiji mean for 19th century Japan, what does it mean for 20th century Japan, but what does Meiji mean for the 19th century world? Okay, so that's, that's a very long preface to your question of, okay, what is that? What, what does that mean? Okay, so then to answer that question, what does Meiji mean for the 19th century world? Again, it's, it's a complicated story, obviously, but I guess in a nutshell, you can say that we can use Meiji as a very interesting exercise or interesting example to try to tell a story of how the usual narrative of world history in the modern era of being a history of the rise of the West is not exactly what we think it is. In other words, the most essential utility for me in talking about Meiji Japan is to get a sense of how modern world history is not in fact, just a narrative of the rise of the West. So, okay, that, that sort, sort of sounds fairly banal, but, you know, it has various implications. And, you know, there, there are various ways of getting at the story of how modern world history is not a history of the rise of the West. Uh, number one, you, know, you could start looking at what's going on, not just in Japan, but in, in Asia in general, from the early modern period onward. And first, temper our notion that the, the so-called West is basically from the 18th or 19th century, you know, having their way with the world. Now, obviously, I'm not the first one to say this. You know, Adam Gulo recently has this great book on the Shogun and the Company, in which he gives a very interesting glimpse of an early modern world, which is definitely not a Western world. It's very much a world in which Japan and other players in, 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 in Asia, including China, are able essentially to continue to set the rules. And this is particularly, you know, if you just think about it in the Japanese context, maybe it's not so compelling. But if you think it in, about it in the world context, it's quite interesting if you keep in mind, you know, what's going on from, you know, what defines early modern in world history. I mean, expansion is, is one of the important parts of the story. And we're talking particularly first the expansion uh, of the Iberian empires into the Americas. You're talking about ultimately the Dutch then and the British moving east, the British ultimately colonizing uh, India. And by the latter 19th century, a whole range of powers colonizing Africa, the scramble for Africa. If you think about, you know, basically Meiji 
in the context of, say, the scramble for Africa or the colonization of India or, say, the earlier colonization of the Americas, uh, it's quite interesting to note that, well, Asia is the one area, well, East Asia in particular, obviously Southeast Asia is different uh, uh, and uh, South Asia is different, but East Asia is one area in which uh, the so-called rise of the West is really not a rise of the West uh, until much later on. And even in the Meiji period, when you know clearly you have China, you have Japan, ultimately Korea plugging into a so-called unequal treaty system, the notion that even when and after Perry arrives, the Japanese are able to have a very significant amount of agency and sort of determine their fate in the way that you would, well, certainly the, those living in the, in the New World weren't able to determine their fate. Uh, those living in the uh, subcontinent in India weren't able to determine their fate. Uh, you know, East Asia is, is quite an exception to the rule of basically the age of empire that is emerging from the early, early modern period. So that's, that's one way of sort of saying, well, look, if you focus on Meiji and you put that in the context of our usual story of the rise of the West, clearly the rest is not, West is not rising in the way that the general narrative tells you. And so that's, that's one thing. But I think even more important than just talking about Meiji and Japan is not essentially being rolled over like other sort of colonized powers is a story of Japan actually defining or helping to define the contours of a 19th century world. In other words, not simply the sort of reactive process of not succumbing to formal empire. It is the very definite active process of helping to create what we know to be the 19th century. Okay, so what is that? I mean, there are many things, uh, obviously. And I guess we can start with the international story, since I'm an international historian. You can make a very compelling case that Japan is very much in the 19th century helping to fashion a 19th century world and helping to fashion one of the most important conventions of the time, and that is empire building. You might guess that I'm talking about the Russo-Japanese War. I mean, scholars have talked about that and the impact of defeating a um, grand European empire, white European empire defeated by an Asian state in 1905, you know, influencing and inspiring all manner of folk, particularly in Asia, Sun Yat-sen, Fan Bo Chao, you name it. And that's certainly important, but the story of Japan shaping the diplomatic and imperial contours of the 19th century world, you know, really go much earlier than the Russo-Japanese War. And I would say, you know, I mean, you can start many places, but uh, one very interesting starting point would be 1876, the Gangwa Treaty, when it's the Japanese, of course, who do the honors of bringing Korea into an unequal treaty system. It's quite surprising, given that the Western empires until that time are the ones who are sort of the principal initiators of action, bringing an opium war to China, bringing Perry to Japan. But it's the Japanese who then bring the same kind of system to Korea. You know, it's sort of a dubious honor, given what ultimately happens in Korea. We're not trying to applaud the Japanese for their foresight. I'm just simply saying that uh, by virtue of essentially starting this sort of treaty port system, in Korea, the Japanese, number one, are vastly expanding the parameters of empire building in, in Asia. Okay, it's not formal empire building in Korea yet, but they're, number one, they're expanding those parameters. 
obviously even more important than this Gangwha Treaty is the next pivotal international event, the Sino-Japanese War. And I would argue maybe that the Sino-Japanese War is even more important than the Russo-Japanese War in terms of how it actually changes the game of empire building globally. I mean, it's mostly, it's mostly a story of Asia, but the very fact of the Japanese defeating the Chinese in 1895 you are then essentially moving, and this is not this is not a new story, but you're you're moving the essential system of diplomatic protocol in Asia from a sort of treaty port system to a much more larger scale spheres of influence system, getting much closer to a vision of almost formal colonization. It's not obviously, but Again, the Chinese themselves are seeing this sort of sphere of influence system as essentially carving up China like a melon by virtue of the fact that all the powers are now jumping in to sign leases to great swaths of territory in various parts of China and getting exclusive rights in those, those parts of China. Of course, that's very different than the treaty port system, which is, is a more shared system of rights within smaller confined spaces of ports. But essentially, by virtue of defeating the Chinese then, so the energy of empire making in Asia completely changes, that character changes. And I would also say that that victory over China really puts East Asia on a global map in a way that it was never there before. You know, before the 19th century, essentially, empire building was focused on the Americas, uh, particularly the Spanish, a little bit of the Portuguese. From the early 1880s, empire building globally from the Congress of Berlin is focused on a scramble for Africa. Well, the moment that the Japanese defeat the Chinese, you have a brand new area of opportunity that, among others, uh, you know, the grandson of um, U.S. President John Quincy Adams, the historian Brooks Adams, basically proclaimed in 1895, uh, that Eastern Asia is the prize for which all the energetic nations are grasping. Uh, you know, that's sort of indicating the degree to which, again, the, the, in, the intention of sort of empire builders globally is all of a sudden moving east. And this doesn't mean that everyone's giving up their African empire or their, their empires in the New World, but it does mean that all this excitement is sort of building up because of something that the Japanese did. Again, whether it was good the Japanese did it or not, that's another story. It's simply the fact that by virtue of Japanese initiative, you are completely changing the sort of attention of the world in terms of empire building. And we're going from Africa to East Asia. Again, we're not talking about uh, colonies necessarily, but the energy and excitement is there. And it's not a coincidence that you know, the Spanish-American War happens soon afterwards and that the United States becomes, for the first time, an empire and that first time empire building enterprise happens to be happening in the Pacific. And that's because the attention of the world has been focused on the Pacific and Asia, East Asia in particular, since uh, 1894, 1895. So it's that kind of thing that I'm talking about. If you're looking, you know, it's a little bit different than simply saying, okay, well, so Japan rises as a modern state and empire, great. Or, you know, Japan is a modern state and empire and has all the dark aspects of that state and empire and baggage along with it, which again is sort of similar to everyone. It's a, it's a story of actually Japan 
making an impact in the world uh, in a way that had the Japanese not done it, uh, the nature of empire building would be very different. So if you want to play an alternative history games, I mean, it's very interesting in, in, in many of these sort of scenarios. Okay, what, what if the Sino-Japanese War didn't happen? What if the Japanese didn't defeat the Chinese? Would there have been uh, an American empire in the Pacific? I don't know, probably given that, you know, you have manifest destiny and the, and the Americans are moving across the continent and thinking about the Pacific anyway, but, you know, it might have happened in a very different way. That's what I mean by global history. It's sort of thinking about what's happening in Meiji Japan and 19th century Japan in a way that really changes our idea of the processes of modern development globally in the 19th and 20th centuries. You're talking about how this global perspective can change our research. So if we were to talk about teaching now, how is it that you're bringing in this, this global perspective into your class? How does it change the view of history for the students? And, and then what are some of the resources and some of the materials that you're introducing to the students to bring to life this time period in this perspective? So it's kind of tricky, I guess, because one part, one of the reasons why I've become so interested in the global West is because I've been teaching, in lieu of my modern Japan course, I've been teaching world history for the last uh, couple <laughs> years. You know, I'm still teaching modern Japanese history, but it does raise a question. So, okay, you're, you're going to try to do a global perspective on modern Japan. That's, that's my ambition. You want to do it in a modern Japanese history course. How can, you know, the, these kids are obviously coming to learn about Japan. What, what do I need to know about Japan? How do you, on the one hand, guarantee that they get the meat that they want on Japan specifically, in addition to sort of introducing them to this subversive enterprise of uh, saying, look, it's not enough to think about Japan, you should be interested in Japan because you're interested in the, in the 19th century world or you're interested in the 20th century world. That's the great challenge. And I, I would say in terms of resources, the particular challenge is if you, you really can't rely on what is out there in terms of edited volumes of documentary, you know, for history courses, obviously, it makes sense to give a little smattering of analytic history, narrative history, but also sort of documentary readings. In my early years teaching, I, I depended in large part upon uh, some of the documentary collections, you know, DeBerry or whatever, to give them sort of contemporary voices. I won't give any specific sort of recommendation. I'll just say, you know, obviously, the more we can avoid such documentary collections, the better, because those documents that are presented are presented and chosen within what I would call the older kind of national perspective, which does not at all give you a sense of sort of the global implication. So essentially, the kind of sources I use in a modern Japanese history course now are just those sources that I have found myself for my own research that happen to give a nice illustration of this kind of global impact that the Japanese are having. And to give you an example, say, talking about the 1920s, which is my main area of expertise, you can give the, the usual Yoshino Sakuzo discussion of democracy or minponshugi and or Minobe talking about the constitution and the emperor for which he is ultimately 
prosecuted. That just unfortunately cues a little bit too closely with the original narrative. So instead of doing that, I would offer something like Nitobe Inazo. Of course, we've known for a long time Nitobe as a great spokesperson for internationalism in Japan, especially through the 1920s. But I have a great piece from him, um, which he is hosting I think the 1929, it's a 1929 meeting of the Pacific Affairs, uh, Institute of Pacific Affairs. And, you know, the Japanese are very much uh, members of this new internationalist organization after the First World War. And they're delighted and decides themselves uh, in 1929 that, that they can actually sort of host this meeting in Kyoto. And it's very interesting to read the sort of opening declaration of Nitobe Inazo presiding over this meeting, talking about the significance for Japan which is really very much a global significance. He's basically saying the fact that we are all gathered now in Kyoto really very much shows that we are already now living in a Pacific age, Pacific in the sense of the Pacific Ocean, but also Pacific in the sense of peace after the the Great World War. And the fact that we're in Kyoto is very important because Kyoto is formerly Heian, basically sort of peaceful capital, Uh, meaning sort of peace. And he's making a big deal about the fact not only that Japan is really the place to be after the First World War, because not only is it a major Pacific power and exemplifies the movement of activity to the Pacific area, but it is also indicative of Japan as very much a part of a new global peace culture. Obviously, that peace culture is going somewhere in the 1930s, a different place. But to hear Nitobe sort of articulate it in that sense is, is very much, I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive to the usual narrative. And it allows us to sort of think about, you know, what, what does everyone else think? In fact, you can't just give uh, sort of observations from the Japan side. You have to give concrete indication, too, about the degree to which, you know, in Britain, uh, France, Germany, U.S., Russia, wherever, those who are observing Japan are, in fact, seeing Japan as a major world player. So it's, it's basically, you know, that kind of combination I like to use when I'm teaching my modern Japanese course. You talked before about how you were thinking about what the Meiji Restoration can tell us about the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on what the Meiji Restoration can tell us about now? Or, or to put that another way, are there certain lessons of the Meiji Restoration that are useful for thinking about today? Well, so I would, again, go back to, I don't want to be, you know, a, a contrarian, but so the most important thing to me is to use it to think about the 19th century world. And to the extent that we start thinking about that, then, okay, let's think about the 20th or 21st century world in the context of our new understanding of the 19th century world. So if one of our major lessons of the 19th century world is that it's not really a story of the rise of the rest, it's really... A, a global conversation of creating a modern empire, creating states, new migration policies, new legal uh, policies, new international organizations in the 20th century. If we think of it in a global sense, then certainly, I guess, the, the most basic lesson for Meiji for today would be that, look, we never really were in a purely Western-created modernity. Japan was right there. It wasn't even a latecomer. It was, you know, implementing a constitution at a time which, okay, it comes after the French constitution, the, the American constitution, but it's 
It's being pushed through in the latter 19th century at a time in which, you know, constitutional politics are still very much a global debate. And at a time in which, you know, that in particular, there is a, a significant global debate on uh, whether or not classic liberalism is viable. You know, the old way of looking at 19th century Japan to say, look, this was a definitely illiberal state. And it was because of that illiberal state that we're going ultimately to the Pacific War. Well, okay, maybe, maybe not. Let's just keep in mind, though, that the latter 19th century world is very much a world talking about the excesses of classic liberalism. And these are the British intellectuals, uh, German intellectuals, French intellectuals. It's Karl Marx. It's all kind, you know. It's all kinds of, you know, having this international discussion. Japan's constitution is very much part of that discussion, and Japan's sort of model is a new challenge to that classic liberalist model. Uh, so what does that tell us about the 21st century? Well, it just if we should just keep in mind that the world as we know it has always been a very complex one in terms of a discussion, a global discussion, especially, well, certainly at least from the early 19th century onward, then we don't have to sort of get into this terrible sort of a historical notion that, okay, we were in, in an, we were in an, a liberal age and now we're in an illiberal age, or we were in an illiberal age and now we're in a liberal. No, I mean, it is an ongoing conversation and it's not just a conversation among uh, the great Western states. Japan has very much been a part of that conversation from at least the latter 19th century onward. And I guess the other lesson to that is, well, then we as Americans, uh, we should sort of listen to what our Asian neighbors are saying because they're saying things and doing things that are very important modifications of, of what we think is our reality. I guess the best, <laughs> the best example of that is just to think of China right now. You know, China, of course, in the 21st century seems a little bit more obviously a state which is having a global impact, but you know, the whole one belt, one road concept is something that is a new sort of entry into the discussion since the, the end of the Cold War of, you know, what is a post-Cold War world going to be? So the lesson from Meiji Japan, I guess, in that sense is, okay, well, let's listen. Let's not just sort of condemn the Chinese for their Eurasian idea of One Belt Red Road. Let's think of what this means to us and what it can mean to us and what kind of opportunities it can raise for us. Because, you know, in 19th century Japan raised some very interesting questions in terms of diplomacy, politics, culture is another thing that we didn't even discuss. You know, I would say essentially that the Japanese are creating what the French call the Belle Epoque in the 19th century. They are very much at the heart of, if one can describe a Belle Epoque aesthetic, it's very much influenced, you know, it's the Impressionists, it's the Post-Impressionists, it's the Viennese Secessionists. They all are very much inspired by Japanese ukiyo-e prints. And, you know, we should just sort of think about that when we think about our 21st century world and as we are sort of in very much the process of thinking what a post-Cold War, post-20th century world should look like. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.